0: Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the joy of talking to Jeff Renicky about inspiration for conservation. We talk about photography and writing and education and a sense of place. It is a beautiful conversation. Jeff is a writer and photographer and educator, and it is no exaggeration to say that he's one of the people who has inspired and shaped me most as a conservationist, writer, and communicator. Um, He was a teacher back at, um, so in 2011, I had the privilege of going to a semester-long boarding school called Conserve School. So the premise was instead of a four-year boarding school that would be really expensive, it was a semester program. So I simply took a semester off of my normal high school career and went to Conserve School. And Conserve School unfortunately no longer exists, but at the time it was 1,400 acres of old-growth forest in northern Wisconsin right on the border of um, the Sylvania Wilderness Area, which is a collection of lakes and old-growth forest. It's very similar um to the boundary waters um, but a little bit less well known um, and jeff taught english there uh, he taught classes where we would read essays by john muir where john muir wrote an essay about um, riding out a thunder and lightning storm in a tree and we the whole class climbed this old red pine and read the read the essay in that tree we it was just this absolutely incredible experience and uh, It is no understatement to say that Jeff and School fundamentally shaped me as a conservationist and communicator. So I am just so honored to share his wisdom and kindness and wit with all of you. Um, I will go ahead and read his official bio now, and then we will start getting to it. Hiking among the giant grizzlies of Kamchatka, shooting the rapids of rivers in China, traveling alone through the nameless peaks of Alaska's Brooks Range, and climbing to the summit of Africa's Mount Kilimanjaro, award-winning writer and photographer Jeff Renicky has lived a life of adventure. His travels and poetic stories have been chronicled in more than 200 magazine articles in such publications as National Geographic Traveler, Backpacker, Reader's Digest, and others, twice winning gold medals for excellence from the Society of American Travel Writers. He's the author of 10 books including treasures of alaska the last great american wilderness and jewels on the water lake superior's apostle islands his photography has been exhibited in the american museum of natural history reader's digest nat geo traveler and more he's been an onboard lecturer in alaska with national geographic expeditions and a teacher at conserve school and currently he's the executive director of friends of the apostle islands so As you guys can hear, I'm so excited to get to this episode. Before we get to it, we do have a quick weekly suggestion. Which is to give yourself grace for what you're capable of right now. Um, this is something I've been thinking about. I've been in Denver, Colorado, for about a week now, after spending several months in Nebraska, and I've been really feeling the altitude, and it has been frustrating for me on some of my runs and hikes. And I am just practicing giving myself grace for that. Um, I've also been experiencing some burnout. Um, the transition from fieldwork back to the real world. Um, like it's not a grind. It's it's actually the change that's been really challenging so giving myself grace for you know both the physical and mental limitations that i'm experiencing right now is really important and i hope you can do the same so let's get to that interview with jeff okay well thanks for so much for coming on the podcast jeff it's great to have you here
1: thanks it's wonderful to be here
0: yeah so let's kind of dive into it um do you remember how you first fell in love with kind of wilderness and wild places um, and where that came from for you
1: I do. I, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, but literally in town. We lived above my father's retail store in right downtown. And so we had no green grass, no parks or anything. It was, uh-huh. it was cement. And what my father did, because he worked seven days a week, he bought a small patch of a farmer's woodlot about five miles from our home. It was a totally nondescript woodlot about nine acres for most people but for me Mm -hmm. it was the spark of a lifetime Mm -hmm. it had two creeks that flowed in from either side of it they joined in the middle and they went out the back which kind of split it up into three different sections Mm -hmm. it had one section that was real dense woods another that had some hills even though it was only nine acres it became my invitation to the world it is the first place I ever camped alone. It's the first place I saw a red-tailed hawk, the first place I saw a white-tailed deer. And it was really the beginning of a lifetime spent close to nature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, Where exactly in Wisconsin did you grow up, Jeff? We grew, Jill and I, my wife Jill and I both
1: grew up in a small town called Kakana, which is just south uh-huh. of Green Bay. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's not too far from, I think, where my dad grew up. Um, and as you know, I was a little bit north of there for my childhood. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things I remember really discussing way back, gosh, 11 years ago now, when you and I first met at conserve school, was the concept of, of wilderness. And I know, you know, one of the taglines that I've heard um, or that I use with conservation detection dogs is that we use these dogs to to protect wildlife and wild places or wildlife and wilderness. So, you know, from someone who's thought really deeply about this for almost a lifetime, what, what do you define as wilderness?
1: It's a good question because it gets at so many different possibilities. The, in the first place, the fact that we have to have these terms and that we're still struggling, struggling to define what they are and how each person sees them, is evidence of our disconnect with the natural world. Uh, Mm -hmm. There there was no wilderness, as you might remember from your close reading of Roderick Nash's book, Wilderness in the American Mind. There was no wilderness (laughs) until there was the antithesis of wilderness, until there was something to set aside against it. And so civilization in that regard created wilderness. And so you could define wilderness as anything that's opposite of civilization. But if you asked a dozen people on the street, what is wilderness? You'd get remarks ranging from there isn't any left on this planet, to Alaska, to my backyard park, to our national parks. It's it's an individual term. And then, of course, there's the legal definition of the National Wilderness Preservation System Mm -hmm. definition that Howard Zahniser wrote into the 1964 Wilderness Act. So it really is a much more complex question than perhaps it should be, which is indicative Mm -hmm. of how far and how confusing our relationship with nature has come. So I will... divided into two things. Uh, as you know from our classes, it's very important that we understand the legal definition of wilderness because that has real-life ramifications for wilderness managers mm-hmm. and for how we as uh, visitors to national parks and forests use wilderness. But as an artist, I'd like to think as wilderness as deeper. You know, when Henry David Thoreau said in wildness is the preservation of the world, that's an often misquoted statement. He did not say wilderness, but he was talking about something greater that includes wilderness. He was talking about the wildness of our existence on the planet and the existence of everything around us and our connection to it. So as an artist, I look at wilderness as everything from an incredible sunrise out the 10th floor of an apartment building Mm -hmm. uh, to federally designated wilderness i take a broader view of it because all Mm -hmm. of them are important we will continue to struggle with our relationship to nature probably forever and part of that struggle will be our continuing need to try to define terms like wilderness
0: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and it's definitely giving me a lot of flashbacks to back being a student when I got to got to just think about this for hours. And uh, gosh, back before Instagram took over my life quite so much. Yeah, one of <laughs> and...
1: my real joys about the time we spent together at Conserve mm-hmm. and the, the time with so many other students is the way that these concepts continually play into your life. Speaking mm-hmm. of Instagram, I just yesterday got it up an Instagram message from a former student who was now a photographer taking photography classes from a friend of mine at the University of Montana. And Uh he was talking about trying to photograph the concept of the sublime, which is another concept Uh we discussed in my class. And so it's wonderful that even years afterwards, Uh uh, these concepts are still a part of all of our existence, if we're paying attention
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's definitely um there have been a lot of concepts that i think i was first exposed to back at conserve school that i like to think i would have been exposed to later in potentially in my undergrad um but have come up so much more and you know being exposed to them at that young age i think really helps make it potentially even more formative than if i had first run into it in a class when i was 20.
1: yeah i I think a lot of you students thought i was making all this stuff up (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe sometimes. Maybe a little bit of it, but mostly the the way it keeps coming back into your lives, I think that you are seeing that we are a part of a very long tradition of trying to define the human relationship to the world around us
0: yeah yeah definitely and i think you know that kind of spins into one of our next questions which was actually to talk a little bit more about conserve school and i know you know it's a it's a bittersweet memory for both of us at this point but um you know what was that mission of conserve school in general and how did that play into your particular mission as an educator there Um, you know because one of the big things we're talking about here is how to inspire and educate Originally, I was thinking young conservationists, but increasingly, this episode, I want to be more about just new conservationists, mm-hmm. um, anyone who's coming into it.
1: For me, it got—it it all got started with an idea of what it means to communicate, as you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. I was happily living as a you know, relatively successful freelance writer, traveling all over the world, writing books, magazine articles, and I enjoyed that. But when I was asked... To be the Earth Day speaker in 2004 at Conserve School, I accepted it as a paying gig, not knowing it would change my life. Mm-hmm. And when I went, the way it changed my life is I went into the school that day, and of course, being compulsively early, the <laughs> the teacher said, "Well, would you like to sit in on a class?" And I said, "Sure." And then the teacher said, "Well, would you like to?" teach the class. And I said, sure. (laughs) So I just got thrown into it and started telling some stories and something really miraculous happened. I realized something that was deeply missing in my life. And that was the immediate connection. Mm -hmm. You can write a book, But by the time your book gets published, it's probably a year after you published, uh, wrote the last word. It might be another few months before it ends up in the hands of a reader. And then, you know, very few of those readers will ever have a direct contact with you. So there's Uh a disconnect. And so when I stood in front of those students and I told some of the same stories I had told in print, but I could see in their eyes that they were getting it, that it was hitting home, Uh that it was making sense. I realized that there was a sense of immediacy that was important to me as a communicator that was lacking despite all the books and despite all the magazine articles and awards and Mm -hmm. stuff. It was the human to human contact. And Mm -hmm. so when they offered me the job, it was really that that attracted me. Obviously it wasn't the money. I made less money as a teacher (laughs) than I did as a writer, but it was the immediacy of the contact and I think uh-huh. that gets to my basic philosophy as an educator: is you have to have that immediacy of contact. We could uh-huh. sit in a class, and I could stand behind a, you know, a, a two-way or one-way mirror or whatever, and and I could read the same readings that we did in my class. But unless you and I and the students can see each other and have this contact with each other and ask questions, and I can see in your eyes that you get it or, or it needs more explanation, there needs to be that kind of immediacy. And so Conserve offered us that, not only in the classroom, but the ability mm-hmm. to read John Muir in a tree or to read Henry David Thoreau standing in a swamp, you know, it was, it was mm-hmm. very immediate, and that was the yeah. draw to me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that was one of the things that, you know, when I think about my time at Conserve, and especially when I think of my time, you know, in the classroom, and I'm saying classroom in quotes, which, of course, our listeners can't, can't see, um, because, you know, at Conserve, the classroom wasn't just that physical room that we had to walk into. It was, you know, as you said, you know, when we were out in, in Michael Salad's class working on creating a dugout canoe or pulling sledges across and reading about um, Shackleton, you know, across ice and in the snow and actually getting cold. And, you know, it's those experiences. And of course we had a lot of other amazing world-changing experiences. And some of my very dearest friends to this day are people I met at Conserve um but that actual classroom immediacy and it reminds me a little bit so as as a dog trainer um part of the reason i still see clients is for that immediacy because i most of my income at this point comes from writing about dog training and writing these blog posts of you know help my puppy is pooping on the floor you know and and i can write about that um but unless I get feedback in the form of comments or people messaging me, which is pretty few and far between Um, to get that feedback, it's really easy to feel like those things that you spend so long curating and writing and then putting out into the world, um, they don't necessarily feel like they have the same impact um, unless you're getting that face-to-face reinforcement for, yeah, as you said, the same stories and concepts from a student.
1: Yeah, and I think the uh, concept of, of dogs is not its not a stretch to say that the way that dogs were a part of conserve school was an in, in indicator of the kind of education that we were trying to uh, give to mm-hmm. students. You know, as you remember, um, Wilson or, or uh, Penny. Um, Penny coming to class or Oliver mm-hmm. going on the hikes with us. And yeah. there was a sense of relaxation, a sense of inclusion in that way yeah. that uh, – was indicative of the kind of education we were trying to give. It needed to be uh, inclusive and relaxed. We, we learn better and we teach better when we are relaxed. You, I'm sure you've seen that with dogs. They pick up on your nervousness. Mm-hmm. They pick up on your fear. They pick up on your emotions. And young people do, too, in a classroom. Mm-hmm. If I come into a class unprepared, nervous, distracted, they can sense that. Mm-hmm. and so we had to work really hard to make it conducive to learning and part of that was allowing dogs to have the run of the campus or to come on our to come on <laughs> our trips with us and that was an important part of setting the tone
0: yeah yeah absolutely i would i would definitely agree with that and and you know especially when you've got young students away from home for the first time i think that you know, that was another big part of it, was helping everyone really feel at home so that the students were in a place where they were really ready to learn and really ready to fall in love too. Um,
1: There's a magic that happens in a conversation between two people when you're doing it, petting a dog together or walking a dog (laughs) together. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. my wife Jill and I were house parents, as you know, and I -hmm. might work to establish a relationship with a student in a classroom But one of the biggest tickets I could pass out to having that relationship is saying, hey, come over and walk our dog if you're interested. And I can't tell you the number of students who knocked on that door and took that invitation. And Mm -hmm. we became much closer because we would spend time talking as we walked Penny or sitting in front of the fire in the living room talking while we're scratching Mm -hmm. Penny's belly. And dogs are conducive to relaxation. And relaxation mm. is conducive to good communication.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I know one of the other things that I've I've noticed some people, you know, both in the field of conservation dogs, but also just in general with my dog, sometimes people feel comfortable saying things kind of pretending that they're talking to the dog, um, but mm-hmm. actually kind of talking to me Um yeah. Uh, there's yeah. There's a really fascinating yeah therapeutic effect for people, and <laughs> one of the things that I love most about being out with my dogs in the wilderness or um, open spaces or wild spaces, whatever we want to call them. Is watching their kind of unbridled joy and them completely living in the moment and, you know, watching them notice uh, both of them stop and sniff the same clump of grass or whatever. And it just it totally activates that sense of place and sense of imagination and sense of wondering, like, oh, my gosh, both of my dogs just stopped at this random clump of grass and sniffed it for five minutes. What am I missing? You know, I'm looking at. I'm looking out into the distance at, at these mountains and you know the glow and the wildflowers and I'm listening to the birds. But even when I'm feeling really present, my dogs help remind me that I can always kind of be more present.
1: Well, speaking of sense of place, one of the most important things to me at Conserve was that sense of place. And in particular, mm-hmm. as you know, with the bog, I spent yes. countless numbers of fall mornings down at the bog and every single photograph that i've ever taken of this incredible bog that lit up with sunlight and uh and fog in on fall mornings was taken with my dog at my feet and i think she penny people called her Penny the photo dog because she would Uh always be with me when I was photographing the bog, And her enthusiasm when I got up in the morning and she knew we were going down there was, you know, it was certainly contagious and helped get me Uh out of bed. And then I, I really felt like she appreciated those mornings, the time spent obviously outdoors, but also the time spent with me Uh and, I always got the impression that she understood that we were there in a special place. When Mm we get there early, sometimes I'd get there before the sun had come over the horizon and the light wasn't quite right yet. I'd often lie down in the pine needles and kind of take a nap and Penny would come over and actually not just lie next to me, but sit flat on my chest. And (laughs) maybe Uh because that was the warmest place. But then I never had to worry about her when I would be engrossed in a photograph, working the, the manual settings on my camera or trying to find the right angle. Sometimes I'd lose all track of time. And, of course, time mm-hmm. will uh, lose track of where the dog is. And <laughs> I always knew that when I would glance up, she'd be sitting right there at my feet patiently yeah. waiting for me. And so with those photographs, which taught me a tremendous amount about a sense of place. I always think of something Ansel Adams said. Ansel Adams said there's always two people in a photograph, the photographer and the viewer. With the bog photographs, I'd say there's two people and a dog in every photograph because Penny's spirit is in every one of those bog photographs that I've ever taken.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and those, and we'll make sure I'll link to your your Zenfolio website um, in these show notes so people can see what we're talking about with these, these bog photos. It's, it's truly a really magical place, and the lighting there is. I mean, and the way that you and your camera and Penny are able to capture it. Um, well, Penny, she really taught valuable
1: lessons because she wasn't mm-hmm. a frantic dog. She was a low key mm-hmm. dog. She wouldn't spend time. Chasing every squirrel up every tree barking at every stick that cracks. She was really relaxed and mellow Uh and that Affected me it helped me to slow down and to look and to be quiet Uh and she didn't mind at all If we sat in the same place for a long time Waiting for the light to get exactly right. She seemed to enjoy that and so I didn't have to spend my time shushing her or you know trying to meet her needs we seemed to be completely on the same page and that was very helpful for the photography
0: yeah, of course. And it, it honestly, it in some ways reminds me of these mornings that I get with my dogs where, yeah, I wake up before dawn and, you know, uh, the dogs know that we're we're going to work and this this feeling of kind of shared mission and driving out to our field site in the dark. And, you know, the dog, even Barley, it's so funny because he's, he's coming up on eight now. So he's getting a little bit older. And I can see him as I'm, you know, making sure that my water is topped off and just dropping on my training bag and everything. He'll start going through his stretches, you know, and we're standing next to the truck in the dark and he's doing his downward dog and really, you know, he's limbering up and getting ready to go out and go to work. And it's there's something about that kind of being on the same page with the dog that makes the rest of the landscape that much more salient and beautiful. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Now, to be fair, um, I have to tell mm -hmm. a story about a time it didn't work out all that well. (laughs) Of course. Uh, as a photographer, as any kind of an artist, one of the things you have to continually do is to is to push yourself in new directions, try new things, stretch yourself, and uh, just to keep yourself alive as an artist, that's very important. So as you know from my photography and as people can see on my website, I've tried some unusual things. One time at conservative school, you might remember, the lakes would often freeze before the snow would come. And so you would Mm -hmm. walk safely on the ice, but there'd be no snow around. And the ice at those times would get this blue cast in the morning. Beautiful, exquisite light. So I was trying this experiment. I had these long pieces of blue silk-like fabric. And I'd go out to Mm -hmm. the middle of the lake over that beautiful light and i would toss these scarves into the air and they would float down very slowly uh, shimmering with that blue light and i would try to mm-hmm. photograph them well as you well know for most dogs when you throw anything they think it's for <laughs> them and so I had a thousand pictures with Penny's nose in the corner trying to catch the silk, <laughs> the silk scarf. She didn't get the fact that this wasn't the bog and it wasn't her. for her. So I probably should have left her at home at, at that time, but she had yeah. fun on the ice.
0: Well, now I'm imagining like, oh my gosh, I could probably get, you could probably get some beautiful portraits of the dog if that was what you were trying to do with that effect.
1: Um, Well, that's a good point, because what I eventually did was give up trying to stop her from doing that and then back up and take pictures of her jumping to try to get the scarf. Uh Sometimes dogs teach us that maybe what we had thought we were going to do isn't what we're going to do, and you have to be Mm -hmm. flexible enough to say, okay, this isn't working, let's back up and still create something beautiful. But it's just not what you had in mind and Penny taught me that lesson.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, yeah, and I'm thinking when, as you're kind of describing this, these silk scarf photos, I don't know if you've seen, um, there's a trend in the dog photography world that's been going on for about a year now where people will get, um, kind of powdered colored chalk, and rub it into the dog's fur, I imagine, and then get these photos as the dog takes off running. And they've got these beautiful clouds of, you know, fluorescent chalk um, spewing up behind that behind them. In some ways, it reminds me of some of the really interesting portrait work you've done with, you know, pieces of thrift store glass um, yeah. and just playing with light and clarity and and your subject in so many different ways.
1: Well, speaking of that, uh, the mm-hmm. photographer Hannah Hudson. Uh, mm-hmm came to conserve school. She's lived here in Bayfield for a long time as a friend of mine, and she does some exquisite dog photography. And so she came to my photo class one time and we had all the campus dogs kind of pose for our class and for her. And at first I was really kind of nervous about it because as you remember, there were some pretty active dogs on campus, mm-hmm. particularly when they were put in a situation where all Eight or nine dogs were in the same area. And it, it was just chaos. And at first, I thought this is never going to work. Uh, it just—it's mm-hmm. just too crazy. But Hannah had this way of urging us all to to let the dogs decide what's kind of going to kind of happen, mm-hmm. and then photograph what they do rather than trying to force them to do something. And I think that mentality helped me with those photos with the scarves because I realized. I'm not going to be able to channel Penny's energy in a different direction. My job is to try to make something positive out of this that she's going to do anyway. You know, it it was her decision at that point, and I just went with the flow. So I learned a lot about photography from Hannah Hudson's, how she handled the dogs. She didn't try to force them to do something. She Uh photographed what they gave her.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know I take a lot of photos of barley and I not necessarily, most of them are with my phone camera, but this morning I was taking some photos of, um, we have these little custom treat pouches that I'm going to be selling on the website. And I was trying to get him, he'll hold things in his mouth on cue really nicely for me, But I had this picture in my head where I wanted him to be holding the treat pouch in his mouth and tilting his head and we don't have, I haven't taught him to tilt his head on cue yet. Um, And one of the things that's always interesting trying to work with, yeah, work with your dogs is uh, until you really teach them a cue to tilt their head or something like that, you're just going to have to work with what you've got because, uh, you know, when you photograph humans, you can ask them to, oh, you know, that light is at your back, tilt your, you know, tilt your chin up a little bit, oop, too much. (laughs) You can't do that with dogs. Um, Sometimes you can get creative, but.
1: A really great lesson for an artist to learn, and I learned it in in a a different way as well. There was, uh, and still is, this wonderful exhibit that goes around the country called the 50 Greatest Photos In National Geographic, and it is exactly that. Mm -hmm. The editors of National Geographic have chosen the 50 best photographs in their opinion. And -hmm. when you go to see the exhibit, you see not only the photograph blown up huge, there's two plaques next to it. One is a plaque that discusses why the editor thinks it's such a great photograph, and another plaque where the photographer describes how they got the photograph. Mm-hmm. And a le- I went to it at the uh, Yelkley Museum in Washsaw, uh, Wisconsin. And I was enthralled reading the captions for this reason. Of the 50 photographs, a large percentage of them the photographer admitted that this was not the photograph that they had set out to Mm -hmm. get. It's not the photo they had in mind. They were just flexible enough to adjust to the opportunity when it presented itself. And that was startling to me. You think Mm -hmm. one of the 50 best photographs in the world, and it wasn't what you intended. Well, there's a great lesson there about paying attention and taking what, what the world gives us.
0: Yeah, no, and I think I'm actually circling back to your discussion of having Hannah Stonehouse, and we'll link to her website as well in the show notes, come to your class. And um, one of the things you said is actually, it's another lesson that I feel like I've really learned and internalized from you, was you were thinking as you're getting ready for this class, this is never going to work, here are all the reasons this isn't going to work. And yet you went ahead and tried it anyway. And that is there's this this spirit of experimentation and being willing to say, you know, hey, this is a crazy idea. We don't really know about this, but let's give it a shot that I, I really admire and um you know strive to channel um when I can. Well
1: I think it's a sign of maturation, whether it's as an artist, a teacher, or a dog trainer, when you have enough confidence in yourself confidence in your subject that you can let go of some of the expectations as a young teacher i'd often go into my classroom with every word scripted mm-hmm. and then when it went off the rails i was lost because i didn't know how to adjust to it but as a i grew as a teacher as i grew as an artist and my guess is as you grow as a dog trainer you get enough confidence in yourself to to react to what happens rather than try to force the flow of things into a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the lesson of the National Geographic Photography Exhibit. They could have focused only on that idea. I want this photograph and I don't care what happens. I want this photograph. And they would have Mm -hmm. missed one of the 50 greatest photos in the history Mm -hmm. of National Geographic. Mm -hmm. But they had enough confidence to say, okay, I'm going to now change my focus and take what the world gives me and it turns out to be something amazing
0: yeah yeah definitely hey everyone just dropping into this episode with an update on our patreon um so we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past we've got the three dollar a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode but you also get to join our monthly training video calls which are great if you are considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level Um, we will record the calls, and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets, gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that, plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback, and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, and we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work, or explosives, or narcotics, or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, Kden conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. Um, so I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we are also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to... Uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls we will all watch the same webinar read the science same scientific paper or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it so that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world but also learning more about ecology conservation odor dynamics all those great things it's real nerdy it's awesome So, I also added some exciting new merch. So, for our patrons, now, once every quarter, you will get an exclusive... Um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, You get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers. And all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon. And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon, so I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon again for as little as three bucks a month. You get all sorts of fun stuff. At those higher levels, you do get more one-on-one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. So why don't we, you know, why don't we ch- just switch gears a little bit? We've been talking a lot about conserve and we've been talking a lot about creativity and and art. In general, um, but let's talk a little bit more in depth about that—the power of words and photos to inspire people. You know, one of the one of the reasons I love making this podcast and I love my my kind of dual role as a writer and a scientist is because the science that I do isn't necessarily likely to win over hearts and minds. It's not necessarily likely to inspire people. So. You know, let's talk about, yeah, words and photos to inspire people and maybe get people to the point where they're ready or interested enough to actually deal with maybe the science and the numbers, if if they so choose or not.
1: Mm-hmm. My views on this have been very shaped by a writer named John Burroughs, who mm-hmm. uh, was a very popular writer in the late 1800s, uh, contemporary of John Muir, and a lot of people think of John mm-hmm. Muir today, but John Burroughs was actually much more famous than John Muir, mm-hmm in a contemporary fashion and muir said that knowledge without love will not stick but teach someone to love something first and knowledge will follow so i've often heard that that statement knowledge is power well to me that's the second step love Mm -hmm. gets you to that knowledge you have Mm -hmm. to open people's hearts before you can open their minds to the possibility of doing something about it. Mm -hmm. A really great example of this, uh, as an English teacher, is Aldo Leopold's book, A Sand County Almanac. Mm -hmm. It's a classic, of course, but if you look closely at what he does, in the first chapters of the book he's not talking science or philosophy he's getting you to fall in love with the oak tree that gets hit by lightning or with the sound uh-huh. of geese in the march wind if i if i were the wind and then later in the book is when he introduces the concept of the land ethic and man's responsibility to the world around him if it were flipped around the other way we mm-hmm. wouldn't probably have heard about that book because it, mm-hmm. wouldn't, it wasn't preparing fertile ground for people to fall in love with the landscape first and then say, okay, I now love this place. What is my responsibility to it and how do I advocate for that? So it's mm-hmm. a process. It's a journey. And we had, can't take steps in that direction until we have sown the seeds of love
0: yeah yeah and i know that's i just finished up reading i i'm embarrassed to admit this but my first terry Tempe, tempest williams book um i finally got around to reading when women were birds and i've I've had you know how many of her books on my reading list for 11 years um and that's one of the things that she does just so exquisitely well and i've already i've i fell in love with you know utah um and the desert back in undergrad, um, because one of the incredible things that Colorado College offers is classes are taught on the block plan. So you get three and a half weeks of really intensive coursework of just one class at a time, and then you have a four and a half day weekend, and then you start your next class. So there's four classes per semester, but it's just one at a time. And those block breaks were um, incredibly formative. And I think Conserve School is part of the reason that I was so drawn to that block plan, because what Colorado College students did, at least when I was a student there, was you wrapped up your class um, Wednesday at noon was usually by the time the final was done and you would have packed while you were studying for your final on Tuesday night and then we would load up and drive eight hours from Colorado Springs to Moab and go climbing for four days and then get back to class get back to campus at 11 o'clock on Sunday night covered in red dirt you know I, I like every first day of every first class I always had like peeling nose from, like, sunburn and windburn. Um, And one of the things that I absolutely loved about that teaching setup was I did, you know, it gave you the space to really fall in love with, you know, whether you were going to Moab or going to Steamboat to go skiing or even potentially just staying on campus and recuperating if you'd had a really intense class. And that really... At least for me and I assume for many other students primed us to be in this place where, you know, when I took a class on politics of energy and climate change or, you know, these other dense classes, um, even, you know, biochemistry and some of these other other courses, I was so much more ready to absorb it because I had really been given that chance to fall in love.
1: Well, now that you're out of conserve, I can let you in on some Mm -hmm. of the secrets about how we did things there. But I think it's indicative of what we're talking about. You might remember my very first day of of my class. We don't go over the rules and regulations. We don't, you know, look at the Mm -hmm. assignments. We played with toys on the floor. Mm -hmm. And and before we did a big project like the... uh, the spirit guide the demon guide we didn't jump right into it we went outside first and we walked through the woods mm-hmm. and we looked for trees that looked like monsters what we were doing there is much the same as what aldo leopold was doing with the San county almanac we were setting the stage we were getting you mm-hmm. to think about learning as like playing with toys being fun and then we jumped mm-hmm. into the learning we we're getting you to think of the woods as a place where there could be Unusual creatures and where that idea would come from and then we jump into the academics And I think that's important even today in my new job as friends of the apostle islands Mm -hmm. executive director I don't hit up our visitors before they've done their trip in the apostle islands for their help with our organization You wait till they go out there and fall in love with it and then they come back and they ask me How can I help? Well, funny you Mm -hmm. should ask. We just happen to have a ways for you to do that. So you can see when you become an educator that this is at play everywhere. You get Mm -hmm. your person to to fall in love with whatever it is you want them to learn or help protect, and then you provide them ways to do that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It's a and very one of,
1: classic and, education tool.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we're saying anything earth-shattering, but hopefully we're saying it well enough that people at home are enjoying it. Um, and one of the things, so I just finished up writing a grant application to be a National Geographic Storytelling Fellow. Um, and the central tenant, and it, you know, it's highly competitive, so I have no idea if I'll get it, but the central tenant of what I was proposing was that, dogs and conservation dogs in particular can become this kind of charismatic focal point to help people fall in love with places or animals or causes that maybe are a little bit less naturally charismatic. Um, so one of the really good examples I have, and this was back in the days when I worked at Working Dogs for Conservation, but um Barley and I were were a team that helped. Um, We were looking for this plant called Dyer's Woad. So it's a highly invasive plant um, that had taken over one of the hillsides just outside Missoula. And they were working on beating it back and they'd done an incredible job. But when reporters or educators or school groups came out to watch the work that we were doing or learn about the work they were doing, it was the dog they wanted to photograph. It was the dog they wanted to ask about. And I could get them to fall in love with Barley and his, you know, his <laughs> stupid tongue that's too big for his mouth. And, you know, the way he tries to shove the toy up under your arm when you're trying to take notes. And then I can talk to them about this this, you know, kind of obscure plant that is allelopathic and it drops ten thousand seeds. So if we even miss one, you know, and then I can educate people on it. And again, that's kind of the central tenet of what I'm trying to do here and part of I think the value of conservation dogs that is it's it's a challenging thing to talk about because they're both a really valid scientific tool and I don't want to uh, take anything away from that by talking too much about the communication aspect but one of the other really important things again especially for things like an invasive plant or maybe an endangered beetle or something is if we can get people to fall in love through the dog and get their attention and their time and hopefully their money, to dedicate towards a cause, um, that's just as valuable, if not potentially more valuable, than the dog's actual ability to sniff out that beetle or that plant.
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, about being open to new ways into the same result. I'll give you an example. Uh, In my classes, you might recall, we read Jack London. In particular, Mm -hmm. we read To Build a Fire, and we would read some Mm -hmm. pieces on... Uh, from call of the wild well in to build a fire for instance jack london is discussing concepts like uh socialism and capitalism and (laughs) the technology versus instinct and and uh responsibility versus freedom you know he's talking about some high (laughs) philosophical things but uh, often what people wanted to talk about was the dog in the story and so at first, I would fight that. i said, no, 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 it's not a story about the dog. Let's do this. Well, <laughs> but you can use the dog and the love of the dog and what happens with the dog uh, to, to, gain, to gain access to the story. So I'd often turn it around and I'd say, okay, well, let's tell this story from the dog's point of view. And we mm-hmm. get to the same place, a, a good, long academic and uh, insightful discussion about the same concepts, Only we would do it through the eyes of the dog. I had a writing Mm -hmm. teacher in in my master's program named Susan Cheever. And uh, this used to drive me crazy, but now it makes sense. So no matter what story you would write, you would bring it in and she would read it. And she'd always say the same thing. Well, how would it be different if you wrote it from the dog's point of view? Even if there wasn't a dog in the story, she would say that. And at first, she like, said, What are you talking about? There's no dog in the story. But then I realized what she was saying is you could write it from a completely different point of view mm-hmm. and get to the same point, the same moral of the story, but uh-huh. told from a unique point of view. And she was just using the dog as kind of a attention getter to do that. But yeah. it's really true. We are so concerned sometimes not with where we end up as how we get there and sometimes we have to back up and say it doesn't matter if they fall in love with barley as long as i get the point of Mm -hmm. what we're doing here he -hmm. becomes a gateway into their love of that and that might be just as good
0: yeah yeah and again especially when we're looking at a conservation issue that potentially doesn't have a tiger at the center of the story or you know um, a spectacular landscape that has really talented photographers and writers dedicated to helping people fall in love with it another um place that barley and i um well barley and i actually didn't work here but it was my first field assignment i was just shadowing at the time back at working dogs for conservation was um the neil smith wildlife refuge in iowa it's just outside des moines and it's the prairie um and I love the prairie and people always kind of scoff at me when I talk about it. But, um, you know, that's another example where even I think when people see beautiful photos of storms rolling in over the prairie or you know maybe you have read little house on the prairie or i'm sure there's other more recent books that help people potentially uh understand and fall in love with the prairie it's not a landscape that naturally is going to attract a lot of attention but you put a cute dog in there and you uh you start getting people excited about it uh, and then we can talk to them again about you know noticing these little things like i've got some exquisite photos of tree frogs i stumbled upon when i was out in the field or um you know, just cute photos of the dogs. Uh, we call it porpoising when the dogs are kind of ju- trying to jump up and over and through the the long grass, um, and you just kind of see them boinging around. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of good stuff with dogs. They're uh, you know people are people are you know quite literally hardwired to fall in love with them. It's similar to to fire. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was actually just reading or I was listening to the Ologies podcast. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, they had a uh, Gosh, I can't remember the guy's title, but he was talking about studies. Um, he studied ancient fire and ancient fire building and moving and those sorts of things. Then he talked about studies where... Um, if you actually have both the visual and the sound of a crackling fire it will like you know literally lower bro- blood pressure and those sorts of things so it, there's mm-hmm. just something really primal so let's pivot a little bit you've mentioned the friends of the apostle islands national lakeshore and it's um one of my favorite things about talking. there are many many things that i love about talking to you but it's how um i think a lot of the places that are most formative in my life are also places that are really formative in your life um which just you know, selfishly, I love. So, the Apostle Islands, what are they? Where are they? Why are they special? And what are you doing with your new position there?
1: The Apostle Islands is an archipelago of 22 islands off the north coast of far northern Wisconsin and Lake Superior. 21 of those islands are protected in one of only three national lake shores in our country. And a major portion of the park is also protected as wilderness. And one of the beauties of it is the lessons that we can learn from this. These islands were studied for national park uh, designation way back in the 1930s, but at that time, They had been farmed, they had been quarried, they had been logged, Mm -hmm. and they were pretty beat up. And there was a guy named Harlan Kelsey who came up here to study the potential of making a national park out of it, and he was pretty harsh. He basically said the Apostle Islands will never rise to the national park level. Well, that was true if you were very short-sighted, but he did. Mm -hmm. He said this in 1930, just at the time when the Great Depression hit. Well, when the Great Depression hit, people stopped farming, they stopped logging, they stopped quarrying the islands because the business wasn't available, and we just simply left the islands alone. And Mm -hmm. 40 years later, Gaylord Nelson, the father of Earth Day, who was then the senator from Wisconsin, helped to get these islands designated as a national lakeshore, and Mm -hmm. on December 2nd, um, 2004, George W. Bush designated these as a wilderness, a wilderness, not Mm -hmm. only a national park, but a wilderness. And how did that happen? Well, between the time of Harlan Kelsey and those designations, we simply left them alone. And my Mm -hmm. point is sometimes the best things we can do for a landscape is just leave it alone and nature will heal it I hate that term heal mm-hmm. it but it will it'll come back of its own accord. We don't have mm-hmm. to manage everything It's a good lesson for a wildlife biologist or for an artist is mm-hmm. sometimes the best things to do is leave it alone and let the natural forces work and the, so the Apostle Islands you mentioned Terry Tempest Williams she's written a new book called the Hour of Land which is about national parks and her last chapter is about hope. And after I read the book, I I talked with her and I said, you know, you really should have based that chapter on the Apostle Islands because the Apostle Islands are, to me, a landscape of hope in that sometimes if you just leave it alone, nature will help in the process of getting it back where it should be. Mm -hmm. And so today the islands are a very popular boating, uh, kayaking, sailing community. We get about 200,000 visitors a year. And like any national park, the park is not funded by Congress up to the level that it should be. And so Mm -hmm. Friends of the Apostle Islands is the official philanthropic partner of the national park here. And what we do is help people help the park. When they've Mm -hmm. come back from their kayaking trip or sailing trip, and they are buzzing with excitement about the beauty of these islands, and they say, how do I help? then we can say well funny you should ask we just happen to have a program which will allow you to volunteer to donate to to be a part of helping the park into the future so friends friends is literally the friends of the park
0: yeah yeah and how long has friends of the apostles uh, apostle islands been around
1: we'll be celebrating our 20th year it began in 2002 as an Mm all-volunteer organization uh, Jill and I are now the co-directors, the executive directors, mm-hmm. we're the first paid full-time staff. But Congrats. in intervening 20 years, this will mm-hmm. demonstrate the power of volunteerism by people who are passionate. In those 20 years of being fully a volunteer organization, they raised more than $500,000 in direct donations wow. to the Apostle Islands National Park. People love parks. And once Mm -hmm. they love parks, if you give them the mechanism to help and you ask them to help and you show them how, they will come through for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, uh, one of my first... One of my first jobs was being a sea kayaking guide in the Apostle Islands, um, and it's it's a it's a really incredible place. There are sea caves, um, which I guess are lake caves, technically. Yeah. <laughs> that um, sometimes there's a week or so in February that you can actually walk out to, and they're absolutely stunning. It really depends on the winds and, you know, climate change and whatnot to actually get good ice um, that's safe on such a big body of water, but getting out on, on boats, um, there are ferries if you're not mo- much of a sailor or kayaker, um, <laughs> uh, as a, a final, uh, plug, if you want to visit the area, um, my dad runs an Airbnb about 40 minutes yeah, from yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you can come stay at my dad's Airbnb and then go out and, uh, support Jeff's work with the Apostle Islands. So Jeff, one of the other questions I had for you was, you know, you've been an educator, you, you were a writer, photographer for a long time. You've always been, I suppose, but, and then you focused on educating kids, um, you know, high schoolers for a really long time. What are some of the, the differences or pivots or lessons that you've had um, as you're working with adults now more um, instead of kids and potentially more of a fundraising capacity versus pure education?
1: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities. In fact, one of the ways to get at that answer would be to say that what I consider myself is a storyteller. I can mm-hmm. tell the story in front of a class. I can tell the story through a photograph. I can tell the story through a magazine article. I can tell the story standing in front of a, a group of donors explaining why they should write a check to the Friends of the Apostle Allens. And I, I don't say that cynically. I say that as an indication of the power of story. Everybody, Mm -hmm. from kids to adults, loves a good story. And if you can put your love of the place that you are trying to protect or the species that you want to draw attention to or the cause that you think is important, put it in the form of a story. Facts and figures don't stick. It's love, and love shines through most greatly in a story. So do I teach differently when I'm... working with kids is working with adults. Well, there's there's subtle differences in pacing. There's difference in you know, the the lexicon that you use. There's difference in the mm-hmm. assumptions of understanding, how much background you give. But really what you're doing is is weaving a story about a place or a cause that you want them to fall in love with. And once you've done that, as we have spoken to, people will stand up and do it. So it's, it's yeah. mostly the same.
0: Yeah. So I think it would probably make the most sense then to close out with one of your famous stories, if you've got one about the Apostle Islands or conserve or Sylvania that you're uh, you're itching to share.
1: Well, let me tell a story about one of uh, my favorite photographs of the Apostle Islands. Mm. Because I've lived here for so long, there's certain places that I have in my mind pictured, thinking someday I'm going to get a photograph if. The stars align. And this story is about a time the stars literally aligned. There is a place just off the north end of Basswood Island mm-hmm. that called Honeymoon Rock. And I always wanted to get a photograph of that under the stars. But it's a long way out on Lake Superior. Lake Superior can be cold, it can be rough, it can be dangerous. So everything had to fall into place. And one night, as you will remember, because you were a part of it, Mm -hmm. I woke you up as you were here with uh, Kira (laughs) Meinhardt, and I said, "Uh, tonight's the night, let's go. And you were able to jump in our boat, and we went out there, and it was a beautiful night. I was expecting just stars over Honeymoon Rock, but as you will recall, the northern lights Mm -hmm. came off. Mm -hmm. And because I knew the place so well, I had been out there hundreds of times. I knew where I could get out of the boat safely in the dark. And I jumped out, which might have frightened you, but I knew where I was. And so I was in about three feet of water. I set my camera up in Lake Superior. And I had time for about three long exposures of Honeymoon Rock under the northern lights. And that photograph ended up hanging in the Smithsonian Institute as part of the 50th anniversary celebration of the National Wilderness Preservation System. And I tell that story because it's an example of, number one, a great sense of place, knowing a place mm-hmm. well enough to envision a picture, but then also getting out there and having the unexpected happen like the Northern Lights and being yeah. willing to change change and get, it's not the picture I envisioned, it's way better than the yeah. picture I envisioned.
0: So yeah, it's an absolutely stunning photo. Um, it gives me chills, even it like oh, just funny. whenever I get to see it and be like, "I was there." Yeah, you I know? remember
1: when I was standing oh. in the water next to the boat, and remember Mike Radke was with us, our mm-hmm. captain friend, and his brother Joe, and. You guys couldn't see what I was doing from the back of my camera. So you're sitting there in the dark and you're wondering what the heck is going on. And I passed my camera mm-hmm. up first because it's so expensive. And as I passed <laughs> it up to Mike, I had the viewfinder was on. And he looked at that picture and he literally gasped. He just yeah. went, oh, my God, because he, he couldn't see what was happening. And mm-hmm. when you saw it in the back of the camera. It literally took your breath away. Yeah, and it still does that for me
0: yeah yeah definitely well thank you so much for sharing that and um we will make sure in the show notes to link to you know the, the friends of the apostle islands i'll drop in my dad's airbnb link <laughs> um and uh just let everyone um find you find your zen folio do you have anywhere else that you'd want to make sure we link to um your i know you've got an instagram now yeah, anything else that you'd like
1: and friends of the apostle islands does too as the executive director uh-huh. i'm also chief bottle washer and chief photographer for that. So if you can also mm-hmm. see much of my work through the Friends of the Apostle Islands uh, website, friends friendsoftheapostleislands.org, mm-hmm. and our Instagram and Facebook pages as well.
0: Excellent. Yeah, again, I'll, I'll link to all of that in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Jeff.
1: You are welcome, as always.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed learning from Jeff and hearing his stories as much as I always do. Um, I hope that Jeff has inspired you to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. And this week's call to action is to find a place that speaks to you somewhere local or far away that calls to you and visit it often and get involved in its protection and that call to action actually comes from jeff not me this week so as always you can find show notes donate to canine conservationists and join our patreon at CanineConservationists.org. i will of course include all the links so that you can support jeff's work and friends of the apostle islands there as well until next time